Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, joining you from the Halifax International Security Forum in Nova Scotia. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After a bull market run, Wall Street investors had a smooth week, even amid lingering inflation and recession fears. The Biden administration is calling for another $37 billion in aid for Ukraine. Boeing announced a major reorganization of its defense business as acting Federal Aviation Administration Administrator Bill Nolan said his agency won't be able to certify the company's MAX 7 jetliner by the December 27 deadline set by Congress, adding that he will need new legislation from Congress uh, to continue the process uh, that also will have implications for uh, the company's MAX 10 aircraft. All of this on lower deliveries of not only jetliners, but combat aircraft like the F-35. News from BAE Systems, MTU, and Rheinmetall as NASA's Artemis has finally launched on its month-long mission to the moon and back. And the alliance between France and Germany that also includes Spain to develop a new combat air system is improving. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Ron and Richard are going to be joining us first, uh, and then we're going to talk to Sash a little bit later in the program. Ron and Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Uh, an absolute pleasure having you guys on the program. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And our coverage of one of the world's truly great Democracy, Security, and Civil Society Conferences. The Halifax International Security Forum is sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Guys, thanks very much again for joining um, me and to the audience, uh, your patience a little bit because I'm losing my voice uh, at this uh, incredible event uh, with so many um, terrific participants uh, and truly the annual uh, family setting uh, in this great um, Canadian town. Uh, that the entire team at the Halifax Forum sets um, with a special uh, shout out to Peter Van Prague uh, and his team uh, for putting this together on an annual basis and, and convening so many fascinating people. Ron, start us off. Uh, market is flat after a uh, what was a bull run, right? How did the group perform and what were sort of the broader drivers? Yeah, this week, uh, if you look at the, the market, it was roughly flat. The S&P was down uh, about uh, half a percent. So it's kind of within the normal volatility of a flat market. Uh, and then you look at the performance across the, some of the larger cap names that we look at closely. Um, Boeing was the underperformer. It was down 2%. Uh, Northrop was the champ of the week, up 5.5%. Um, Lockheed Martin was up almost 3%. Raytheon Technologies was up almost 2%. Uh, and then uh, I'm not the analyst that follows it, but uh, we do keep an eye on GE because of the aircraft engine business, and it was down about a percent. So uh, kind of mixed performance in the group. I think there was a, a lot of a lot of different things. Um, you know, you, you, there is concern about the, you know the, the question now we get from investors to to say it concisely is you know what's the setup for 2023? How's 2023 going to go? And there's some concern over the defense names into next year because of their performance this year has been quite good. Um, and then you know what what does uh, a slower global economy mean next year for all kinds of things like air traffic, the consumer, and so on and so forth. But um, so I think there's a lot of you know you know cross tides going on, and we're rolling into what will be a very quiet week this week with the Thanksgiving holiday. How did uh, the uh, news from acting FAA uh, administrator uh, Bill Nolan go over on markets when um, the you know he said basically there's no way we're going to get the Max Seven 
certification done as required by law uh, by the December, 20, December 27 deadline. We've talked on this program uh, about what what happens, right? I mean, at one point, uh, Richard, uh, you know, you characterized it as, uh, you know, the CEO, Dave, Boeing CEO, Dave Calhoun was going to shoot the hostage uh, if, if this didn't happen, right? I mean, what What's on investors' minds? What's next in terms of how this plays out? Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody in the investment community expected it to get done by the end of the year. Um, and I think there is an expectation that they'll get an extension uh, from from Congress, which will require some legislation, and that'll take time. I think if you look at what um, Acting um, Administrator Nolan said, that was interesting is that the FAA actually has to stop working on working on it on December 27th and they can't start working back on it until the legislation says they can do so. Um, and if that's the case, that just kind of drags things out even more. So I think the expectation is if you do get um, the extension from Congress uh, that the uh, the max seven would get done at, at some point in 2023, probably in maybe call it Q4. Uh, and then the max 10 isn't until 2024 sometime, probably late in the year. Um, and then, you know, those deadlines just get more challenging if, if it takes time for Congress to actually, you know, put the legislation together and get it passed. Um, and honestly, I don't have a good feel for, and maybe you guys do, um, how difficult that would be uh, in this lame duck session. Um, and we have to wait until next year and so on and so forth. I don't have a good sense on that, but uh, I do think that's a subtlety that was in his, that I didn't appreciate before. Richard, uh, your sense uh, on uh, the impact uh, and how to move ahead, right? I mean, obviously these are two very important airplanes, uh, not just for the company, but obviously one of America's primary uh, exporters, right? I mean, so the notion that somehow, well, it's not done by December 27 and that's going to be the end of it is, is not a likely outcome. What are, what are people telling you about how this is going to play out? Yeah, you know, obviously the whole threaten, threatening to kill the hostage is going to look pretty ridiculous in hindsight. It's not going to happen. Um, now, I too, like Ron, was not aware of the dynamic that the FAA puts down work on December 27th. I really didn't know that. Um, it's generally assumed that if it's going to come from Congress, the incoming Congress, uh, Republican uh, leadership is probably more likely to do it. Uh, this week, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, very important, influential group came out in favor of this. So whatever Boeing said to them seems to have worked, or maybe they just know it. Um, that's promising. Uh, I tend to think this is going to happen, but with even more delays, not just because of Boeing execution, but because of this additional risk that Ron just uh, mentioned that we hadn't heard of before. Uh, so I think it'll happen. It'll take time. There's no risk of cancellation, I don't think, no material risk. But on the other hand, uh, this looks like it might not even be a next year sort of story. Do, do we have Do we have any sense exactly when certification is going to be? Ron, why don't you start us off on what sort of the schedule of this is because seven was expected uh, first, uh, but then 10's got to be certified and you can't really operate an airplane until it's certified, right? In which case it has sales uh, implications uh, as well, as Richard just said. Do, do, what are the timelines we're on now for all this stuff to come together and get certified? And then what's the business impact on the company if it doesn't have the certification in hand? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, the the business impact's easy, right? You don't get the certification, you can't deliver the airplanes, um, and they do have some tens sitting around um, and some sevens, I believe, uh, both um, more sevens than tens, I believe. I just I got to double check that, but I think that's right. Um, so it's just the delays deliveries of aircraft and delays, you know, the ramp, right? I mean, so without the seven and the ten, they can just deliver eights and nines, right? Um, and you've got customers waiting for the seven. Uh, namely Southwest, right? And then other customers waiting for, for the 10. Um, that, so the biggest impact in the business is you can't deliver those airplanes. You can't deliver those airplanes. You don't get the cash from those airplanes. You don't get the cash from those airplanes. Um, you're going to use that cash to pay down debt, uh, most likely, right? And um, if you don't have the cash to pay down debt, then you probably have to refinance the debt. And if you refinance the debt, you're doing it in an environment um, that's less friendly than it was just a year ago because of the rise in interest rates. Um, but I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to play out, but that's kind of kind of how it would play out. In terms of the timeline of certification, I do think the assumption is was that you'd see the triple seven, not the triple seven, excuse me, that's you know 25, 26, who knows? But the 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 dash seven 
um, the middle of next year, I would say, you know, that's probably aggressive now. It probably slips into the second half. Um, and then the 10 would be in 24. Um, roughly a year later, I think is what people were thinking. And maybe that slips a little bit too. It kind of just kind of makes everything slip to the right, which also makes the ramp slip to the right. It makes deliveries slip to the right. And uh, any update on 777X uh, and 787, right? I mean, the 737 is not the only one with, with challenges. Let's just use this uh, as an opportunity for a quick update. Richard, why don't you take it away in terms of building on what you think uh, the sales impact is going to be? I mean, obviously, we're seeing lower uh, delivery numbers, uh, right? I mean, something uh, that you've noted, not just on the commercial aircraft side of things, right, but as well as on the combat aircraft side. Um you know, how does, what, what's the impact of the delay on 737 and where do we stand on 787, 777X uh, as well? Yeah, you know, as uh, Brother Sash would say, incoming fire has a right of way and it's not just the delivery delays on existing 737s and of course the certification delay in the MAX 7, it's MAX 10. It's also that, you know, Airbus is moving towards resolving some and one day all of its A321 uh, NEO production delay delays and you know the objective of course is for hamburg to basically go nuts with those things because the total order book is you know <laughs> about eight times higher than the max 10 um you know something in the, in the 4000 range i think at this point um and matter of fact i think it was just a few days ago tianjin the, the fourth final assembly line or, or third if you count mobile as fourth uh, i've lost count of which order they're coming in but it just delivered its first 321 neo um it's more than just Hamburg. It's also Mobile. It's it's whatever else. So basically, one argument for buying the Max 10 wasn't just that it's a good plane. And I think it is a good plane. It just doesn't have the range capabilities of the 321neo. But it was also that maybe you could get it before they finally figure out how to build the 321neo. That is fast going away as Airbus ramps up fast. So that's a, that's a major challenge. Triple seven X, boy. I mean, <laughs> it just obviously you still have the shadow of that weird cancellation rumor from earlier this year. Um, general feeling is, of course, sometime in twenty twenty five, the freighter aircraft was looking extremely relevant and, and 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 popular too. But some of the shine has come off the freighter market in the past uh, few months, so it's it's you know maybe some of that that demand is and of course the F model wasn't going to be certified at the same time as the passenger model either. Um, so this looks like it's just a 2025 story. Meanwhile, of course, baseline triple seven numbers mostly for all for the F model have uh, are, are ramping down too. So Boeing's going to go through a triple seven revenue trough probably in the you know two per month range if that can be sustained until sometime in 2025 when the 777X gets delivered, we hope. And um, you know one, one of the points you made as we were preparing for the program was uh, on F-35 uh, deliveries also falling a little bit shorter uh, of uh, expectations. Uh, what's, what's your ob- observation there and you know on the combat aircraft, uh, you know overall market delivery rates and, and, and the like, as they would say. Yeah, you know, the fascinating dynamic is uh, very simple. If you wanted to ramp up, you can't. <laughs> and that's kind of across the board true. You look at programs um, where basically people wanted to go from where they were a year ago to where they wanted to be higher, um, and they're not having an easy time with that at all. You know, but you look at people with relatively muted ambitions, business jets, for example, everyone was like, right, right, let's focus on profits. Let's not focus on increasing production. Production numbers have been stable or slightly up. They wanted to ramp the F-35. Oh boy, you know, I mean, hugely popular. People want that jet, um, hoping to get to 156. Now it's about 150 this year, but they're going to have to deliver you know, <laughs> they delivered 88 through the September 30th. They're going to have to do an awful lot of deliveries, probably not practical. Similarly, you know, whether it's Airbus or Boeing, it's things aren't really a lot higher than they were last year. Ditto for Embraer Commercial too, down a little bit. So if you had aspirations to uh, to get to another couple planes per month or something, you're probably not doing it all that successfully. The A320 family is one of the few kind of sort of exceptions. It's behind but it is at least higher than it had been. Ron? Steve Hodzi was uh, at an event this week. Um, and for those that don't know Steve, you know, the, the, the founder of the leasing industry, uh, currently the chairman of um, Air Lease Corporation, um, 
he was at a conference this week saying that he thought you know delivery delays would even worsen into next year and that every aircraft that they've gotten in 20 and 21 and this year um has been late everything's been late um that being said one thing we hear from everybody besides the castings and forging thing is labor 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 that there's shortages of experienced qualified high skilled labor across the entire supply chain up into the oes um, and that's just going to take time to sort out um, you know if you're working in you know many of these uh, facilities metals or whatever um, it can take a number of years to get the skill levels where where you need to be um, and it, it almost seems like you know not to get off on a tangent but you know this is an industry that had a, a graying hair issue that 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 entire level of folks punted during covid and we're trying to catch up um so we'll see but you labor 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 across the entire industry commercial defense and down the supply chain um we are uh, a little bit uh tight on time so i'm going to take uh the conversation uh to uh the boeing uh defense uh reorganization which one of you two wants to take a bite of that uh, you know well first tell the audience what it is that they did uh and then what did you guys uh make uh of the decision uh obviously ted colbert are working very very hard to bring uh order uh, to uh, the department. We had a terrific conversation with him at Farnborough uh, where he said he's going to take the next couple of months, uh, you know, poke around, dig deep, roll his sleeves up, uh, and then come up with uh, an, an, an organ, a, a plan for the future uh, of his uh, company um, that uh, unfortunately has had uh, its challenges. And one of the reasons why he's sitting in the chair and folks have a lot of confidence that he is um, a good executive or, or the right executive at the right time. Anyway, whichever one of you wants to take that away. You know, it's a significant drop in the number of uh, units to streamline operations. And that's certainly a noble goal. And uh, the new BDS uh, chief executive is certainly well-respected. Um, and obviously action at this point uh, is inherently good because everything they've been trying really wasn't working terribly well. But, you know, a, a couple of obvious issues. One is the oldest cliche in business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And well, culture eats streamlining for breakfast too. Um, if they don't change the broader culture in terms of returning to a respect for engineering excellence and a promotion of engineers and technical people into the higher ranks, especially the board, especially corporate, not BDS, but corporate, then all of this will be for naught. Uh, other big caveat, you know, <laughs> um, they signed a bunch of fixed price contracts. Uh, then they lost the commercial revenue that would have enabled them right. to suffer those losses. And um, then they made things even worse by under-resourcing things from the start rather than, you know, biting the bullet up front, providing the necessary resources and moving forward. And then on top of that, you have inflation uh, with the inevitable impact on fixed price contracts. I don't know how much streamlining can do for that. So big caveats, despite the, uh, the, well, noble objective. Ron. Yeah. And then just for maybe just a, a little specificity. So yeah, it's going from eight units to four and the four units are going to be vertical lift as one unit mobility through, uh, surveillance and bombers, another unit, uh, air dominance, another unit, and then space intelligence and weapon systems as, as another unit. Um, and, 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 and what I find interesting about this, right? I mean, you're, you're, yeah, the leadership with fewer units, you, it's, it's something you can get your hands around and you're more accountable as a manager for your, 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 your business unit. So as, um, um, the new leadership of Boeing Defense tries to turn it around, I mean, this is a way to, to get, um, some focus on, on what's going on, um, I would say in the investment community, I don't think anybody really cared <laughs> uh, to be, to be right. blunt. Um, the, the worry in the, in the investment community, again, is you got to peel back the onion a little bit. And I think this is a, a, a reasonable point of view, actually. Um, everybody knows about the, uh, the, the fixed price programs that have been problematic. But if you take the fixed price programs out, which many people do, and you look at, at the profitability on the remaining portfolio, it's actually not doing very well either. Uh, and I think that's a, a big worry in the investment community. That's why why are these legacy programs that you have, um, if you if you take out the other stuff, why aren't they doing better? Why aren't they on par with 
you know, they're peer contractors, right? I mean, there should be some sort of range, you know, you know, low and high, but why are you sort of below low in, in those businesses? Um, and maybe this is a way that, uh, you know, the, the management can get a, a better view of that and their hands are on that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think one of the big problems with those legacy programs is just that they're ramping down considerably, you know, um, especially Super Hornet and, uh, and whatever else. And you've got the supply chain difficulties too on top of that. Uh, I, I think there is the possibility of a, a couple of good positive surprises there. I mean, if they actually do get, I mean, we've heard rumors of this Egyptian F-15 order all year. Who knows? Um, obviously, the Polish A-64 order was certainly good news. And you've also got the weird and who knows, it might even be possible Indonesia F-15 order and whatever else. If any of these happen, you could actually see uh, some kind of increase in the fortunes of those legacy programs. But you also have the headwinds that headwind that it doesn't look like there's very much that's going to save the Super Hornet. That's just going away. So that's going to hurt things, too. Um, we have to go into a bit of a, a lightning uh, round. Uh, so you, either one of you can pick whichever one you want to discuss. Eh, why don't we have uh, Ron talk about Artemis uh, because uh, uh, I, it's, it's for all of us uh, of the moon generation, uh, you know, the notion of returning to the moon uh, and seeing such a powerful rocket, even if it is a lot of rocket and a lot of thrust for very little payload. I mean, I think it, it is an agglomeration uh, of older bits and pieces we had in the bin and we, you know, in order to be able to put it together quickly and it took us forever to put it together. Uh, and it is not the Saturn V in terms of its, uh, in terms of that rocket's uh, extraordinary lifting capacity. Uh, but first I want to just quickly ask about Flora, uh, Richard, uh, right? I mean, in, in any of these big decisions, you know, there's, there's a date, it, well, it'll be spring, it'll be summer, it'll be the fall, uh, it'll be October, uh, it'll be November and now it's early December. Last week, there was a flurry of speculation that, oh, you know, Friday, 5 p.m. is when the decision was going to drop. Uh, you know, everything that I hear is that it's, you know, all about dotting I's and crossing T's at this point and trying to make it protest proof. Uh, and clearly, I think whoever it is who wins, uh, whether it's the uh, uh, Boeing Sikorsky or Sikorsky Boeing team on one side uh, and uh, Bell uh, on the other, they're more than likely going to be a protest because there's no reason not to protest. Uh, you could win. Uh, you got to pay to play. Uh, any impact at all, or any significance at all, in any you know in in the delay? Because some people are you know now it's like into the tea leaf reading part of it. Aside from the fact that these guys do want to make a decision, and they want to make it stick and get on with the program. Yeah, you know, uh, clear your uh, Friday afternoons at uh, at five thirty. Uh, for the next couple of Fridays, right? I mean, that's pretty much when it's coming down. The original, one of the possible reasons for the previous delay or the delay before the last delay was midterms. Uh, maybe that was the reason that no longer appears to be the case. So it probably is uh, dotting I's, crossing T's, like you say. Um, you know, you're really hit by the sheer asymmetry and impact, whatever's coming down the pike. Basically, Boeing, Sikorsky, win or lose, not really a big needle mover. I don't, I'll, I'll let Ron confirm this, but it, it doesn't seem like any investor sentiment is going to be hugely swayed for either large corporation on the basis of the outcome. Whereas uh, Bell, it's huge, and for Textron, it's huge. I suspect that if Bell doesn't win, the revenue ramp down moving forward, given the end of key programs like V22, UH1, why I believe the last H1Z was just delivered a week or two ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, all of this stuff to the U.S. Marines, um, all of this stuff implies some kind of restructuring of the industry. And who knows, perhaps even Textron, which is the last of the horizontal conglomerates now that UTX is no longer a thing, you know, maybe that too begins to they, they think about future options as they say so i just the sheer consequences of this decision uh either not very much or quite a lot really hits you ron anything you want to add to that before yeah, we wrap I mean, it up on artemis yeah i think a couple important points um i think one and i think this is a misunderstanding um in the investment community this is a really big decision for the army because it's not just picking Helicopter A versus helicopter B, you're picking two very different machines. Um, you know, one is essentially a turboprop that can fly vertically, and the other one's a helicopter. And it's a it's a big decision with big impl implications for the army. 
Um, so I'm not surprised it's taken a little bit longer because it's more than just picking fighter A or fighter B or helicopter A or helicopter B. Um, and, you know, we'll see which way it goes and, you know, and hopefully the army does the right thing for them. And the second point I um, uh, would add, you know, this kind of takes me back to my roots, right? I mean, I did my PhD work was on helicopter rotor dynamics. I did a bunch of stuff with the V-22 rotors themselves. I know a lot of people in the helicopter community. And when you talk to some of the the, the gray-haired folks in the helicopter community, you say, who's going to be the winner of Flora? And they come back and they say the Black Hawk. There is meaning that there's a fear that ultimately this could kind of go the way of, uh, of Comanche. And um, we'll see. Hopefully that's not the case. But, um, you know, there are some naysayers out there who have been in the industry for a long time. Ron, you get the last word. Talk to us about Artemis uh, and um, sort of my disappointment that there isn't more coverage and more people talking about what is still a pretty extraordinary achievement of sending a mission like this, a month-long trial mission uh, to the moon uh, of what is a very complex. I mean, they are testing some pretty amazing technology in this in order to be able to make it, even if some bits of it come from the used rocket bin. Yeah, I mean, for a lack of, you know, risking being sounding completely inarticulate, it's super cool, right? And going back to the moon, I mean, I, I believe it's supposed to get to the moon Monday morning, right? Um, that's that, that's very cool. And like you said, test a lot of technology and then, you know, hopefully uh, next time around, we'll get um, some astronauts on it. And I think, you know, this is just a broader piece of um, what's going on in space. It's, it's this fascinating time in space. We have, you know, just to bring it back to the sector, I mean, the companies we follow now have divisions that are now focusing more on being a supply chain for space. We're seeing a lot of activity in commercial space uh, across uh, Earth imagery, uh, all kinds of forms of reconnaissance, the launch business, uh, building, you know, habitats in space to do research and manufacturing. I mean, it's just a really, really awesome time to be kind of following space and looking at space. And I think this is just yet another example of what's going on. And um, it's super exciting. And I agree with you. You would think there'd be more coverage of it. You know, back to the moon, right? We haven't done that in a really long time, um, but uh, it's super exciting. Um, at this uh, extraordinary uh, conference that has so many extraordinary people at it, um, they, uh, Chris Hadfield, uh, the legendary Canadian astronaut was here, uh, and you cannot be a fan of space without admiring that man, uh, not just his career as a test pilot and as an astronaut, but as somebody who's just a true inspiration, great writer, uh, and, and, and certainly somebody who, uh, has inspired many people, even if they're in their mid fifties and were Apollo babies, uh, in to get attracted, uh, to space. And I think we need uh, those kinds of leaders uh, who, who aren't just talking to, you know, the space people, but are actually talking to everybody. And uh, I have to say, I was incredibly honored uh, to get a chance to meet him up here uh, in sunny Nova Scotia. Guys, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure having you on. Uh, and uh, everybody stick around because we're going to be talking to Sash uh, in a minute. Don't go away. Thanks very much. And joining us now is my very good friend, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm, uh, Agency Partners in London. Sash, thanks very much. And I'm sorry you couldn't join the rest of the team, but it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much indeed, Vargo. No, I mean, you know, hopefully we get back together again next week. Uh, it's far better that way. Very much looking forward to it. And I think we can blame me. I'm uh, here at the exceptional uh, Halifax International Security Forum uh, in Nova Scotia, um, always one of the, the true highlights of, of the year. And unfortunately, uh, the schedules of this great event uh, forced us, unfortunately, to split this uh, conversation in, into two pieces, uh, as well as uh, one of our numbers is also on travel, uh, as you and I uh, record this. First, uh, walk us through uh, European markets, obviously a lot of discussion on uh, uh, British uh, inflation and indeed European uh, inflation. Uh, we also saw Jeremy Hunt uh, put out uh, a, a new budget uh, and uh, certain regulatory changes to try to raise revenue while also reducing uh, government spending. Talk us about the broader market and how the Aerospace Defense Group uh, performed in Europe and also the implications uh, for what uh, uh, the Chancellor uh, did uh, and what that means for the future, particularly for British uh, defense spending. Yeah, OK. Um, I mean, it, it was a very, very mixed week uh, for the aerospace stocks, aerospace and defense stocks. But generally, they ended the week better. Partly that's because the end of last week was absolutely dreadful. Um, you know, some of our listeners may remember um, 
uh, European stocks closed at the end of last week um, on you know Friday Friday the week before last. Um, sometimes four, five, six, seven percent down. It was a dreadful close, and so they pretty much all recovered that. And then the performance was a function of the uh, really the, the corporate news flow thereafter. So um, three of the better performers this week uh, all had either a trading statement, BA Systems, um, or put out statements associated with their capital markets days and longer term financial guidance, Rheinmetall, MTU Aero Engines. And both Rheinmetall and MTU, on the day they put up out their statements, uh, were up um, uh, four and six percent. I mean, that was a really, really strong performance by uh, by those stocks. To some extent, that just shows the degree to which investor expectations had become pretty depressed. But also, these are companies which are uh, performing well internally. They are, you know, they are being very, very well managed, and they're increasingly getting a very strong tailwind. So, BA Systems high, uh, highlighted. Really good order intake. I'll come back to uh, some of the big drivers of that at the moment. But, you know, good order intake in uh, US, UK, uh, rest of the world. Um, and that should underpin accelerating earn, uh, revenues and then earnings late 24, but oh, sorry, late 23, but then really 24, 25, 26. Um, that was taken well. Uh, Ryan Rital, again, came out with very, very punchy. Uh, medium-term guidance. They're talking about having a um, a business that overall is probably having revenues of 10 to 11 billion. Vast majority of that is defence by 2025. Margins up in the in the teens. Well, that is best of class um, and very very strong uh, performance overall. MTU Aero Engines very similar. Um, now MTU is much more of a civil aerospace stock. Um, uh, you know, very heavily tied to Pratt & Whitney on the PW1100 geared turbofan, but also has big uh, risk shares with some of General Electric's wide body engines. Um, uh, MTU were extremely optimistic about the uh, potential to, to grow. They will effectively uh, have nearly doubled revenues uh, from pre-pandemic levels by 2025. And pushed margins up uh, as well. That's a very, very impressive performance. So, you know, the companies that came out with good, uh, positive trading statements this week were very much rewarded for it. Um, and you had this bounce back from the really lousy end to the, uh, the previous week. And uh, the implications of what the Chancellor had to say? We've had quite a lot of governments in the UK this year. It pains me to say so. We've had quite a lot of governments just in the last six months. Uh, and we've had a number of uh, fiscal statements um, one of which, eight weeks ago, I think, now feels like a nightmare, was very, very badly received. Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, his job was to stabilise the, uh, uh, the ship, stabilise uh, the finances. Um, he's not a very flashy performer anyway. Um, I think he did a perfectly reasonable job. How would we tell this? By the fact that UK government bond yields didn't move the day he announced the statement. That's good. You know, that means there were there were no surprises. The market thinks that what he's doing is broadly credible, broadly the right thing. Of course, there's going to be a lot of debate about the um, the, 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 the details either side. But, I, you know, that was um, the sterling weakened against the dollar by you know less than a cent. And that's having bounced back a lot from uh, eight weeks ago. So. I think to be able to achieve that in his statement was, um, frankly, a bit of a relief. Now, what did he say that matters? There's clearly get, there's going to be tax cuts. All the high rate um, income tax bans get frozen. Hence, everybody uh, on high rate tax uh, pays a little bit, and in some cases, quite a, a lot more. Uh, most government departments spending is going to be uh, frozen in uh, real terms. Um, but the interesting thing from the point of view of defence, and this really was, a, a, I think, a surprise, was that defence has been allowed to borrow, bring, bring money forward to kickstart some uh, new um, programmes. And last week, there was a slew of uh, announcements of shipbuilding orders. Um, right. That's good. You and I are fans of the Royal Navy. Uh, Royal Navy getting more ships is good. But the fact that in a week when the Chancellor, who is after the prime minister, way the most important man in the British government, uh, is trying to say to everybody, you can't spend a cent, a penny in our case, um, 
the Ministry of Defence goes and spends or, you know, places orders for five, six billion of uh, new solid sh support ships. So these are auxiliary uh, solid stores ships. Uh, three of those being ordered from a um, consortium of British shipyards and Navantia of Spain. And then <clears throat> probably the more important one, um, uh, another five Type 26 frigates from BA Systems, which will fill out the UK's anti-submarine warfare capability. Type 26 frigates are uh, over a billion pounds a piece. They are phenomenally sophisticated ships. Our listeners will remember these are the uh, ships which have been bought by Australia and Canada for their new frigate requirements. Um, and this will uh, give the UK a, a class, certainly at the moment of eight. I know that the Navy has ambitions for uh, at least another two or three more, but we'll, you know, we, we have to see that that further down the line. Um, and this gives BA Systems great visible, you know, their shipbuilding business is running at a very, very high, steady level now into the 2030s, producing some of the most probably that you know yeah arguably some of the most sophisticated warships in, uh, in the world so that 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 was very very good news and i think the fact that the rest of the defense budget is just just going to freeze for a bit um i i worry less about that i think that um the other services have have got to sort out some some quite significant uh, challenges the army in particular on equipment programs you know they've got to sort out the ajax program um and then uh, the uh, Challenger uh, 3 upgrade and also bring Boxer, Boxer into service. Those are funded. Um, and the Air Force, you know, the, the real issue there is if you ha haven't got the pilots, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, you really can't go and buy any more new airplanes anytime soon. So I think when the, when the Air Force sorts its pilot training uh, system out, then they, they'll probably get some, some more aircraft to play with. But until then, um, it get, you know, it's being held down. But overall, I think it was um, there's been a lot of concern and frankly, there's been a lot of fear by some people uh, ahead of this budget. Um, if that was your worry, it was it was better than that. It really was. It was very uh, it was very fiscally um, responsible, uh, and that's what the government needs. That's what the currency needs. That's what the UK bond market needs. Better to expect the worst and be rewarded with something that's not quite as bad uh, than be um, subjected to wishful thinking. I want to point out to our audience uh, that um, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, used to also be the First Lord of the Treasury, which is the little pl uh, plaque that's on uh, that many people wonder what it is on the door of Number Ten Downing Street. And I would point out the Second Lord uh, of the Treasury uh, is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who lives at Number Eleven Downing Street, right next door. So I think that that is uh, suggests the. Uh, <laughs> you know, the critical nature of the uh, intertwined relationship between uh, oh. the Chancellor uh, and the and, and you're absolutely right, Vargo, but, you know, it gets even worse or, or even better. Once you go into 10 Downing Street, it's interconnected with 11 Downing Street, and yeah. there are two flats, um, up, you know, apartments uh, upstairs. And at the moment, Rishi Sunak's family is living in number 11 Downing Street and Jeremy Hunt's family is living in number 10 Downing Street. Um, so, you know, they're very, they are physically very, very close together as well. Uh, this is why those two individuals above all else have got to get on, because if they don't get on, right. um, the government is uh, utterly, utterly dysfunctional. If 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 only uh, Ben Ben Wallace could get uh, into one of those one of those yeah, apartments. Anyway, let's, before before we go down go down a separate rat hole. Uh, and clearly, it's important that he has the ear of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, and that's the important thing is that he does, uh, given how widely respected he is. Um, you attended uh, two important capital market days uh, with uh, uh, Ryan Metal uh, as well as MTU. Uh, giving you sort of a sense in the the Titan vendor, right? Uh, the 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 German awakening uh, that Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, has talked about um, stepping up, uh, you know, Germany's capacity uh, in the wake of uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, and unfortunately, that war continues to brutally uh, play out. I'm in Halifax, and uh, the uh, extraordinary uh, chairman of NATO's uh, military committee, the Dutch Admiral uh, Rob Bauer, uh, as as always, deserves huge points for just not just being a strategic thinker, uh, but also uh, somebody who who speaks truth to power, and was pointing out, look, we are you know, our weapon stocks were already at half stock if we're lucky, and we've been depleting them at a ferocious rate. And it's very, very important for us as an alliance to get the political will uh, to be able to, re you know, do all of the things that we need to do uh, as an alliance, not just to continue to support Ukraine, 
but also uh, to make sure that we refill these magazines and build the capabilities and do so in an alliance and end up in a better place. Uh, ultimately, what are some of the messages that you uh, got uh, from uh, Rheinmetall and MTU that, that talks to not just broader European uh, capability advancement, uh, but also from a German perspective? Both companies were absolutely fascinating uh, about that. They're both very, very plugged into uh, the uh, the German government. I mean, you know, when you think about it, the German defense industry uh, boils down to half a dozen companies, four of which are quoted. Airbus, Airbus's defense and space business is based in Germany with um, helicopters and um, missiles and fixed wing aircraft in particular, but also uh, some space capabilities. Hensoldt and defense electronics. Rheinmetall in armaments and armoured vehicles, where they are huge, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, and then MTU Aero Engines, which is clearly the German partner uh, in every collaborative aero engine programme going. The, so what I mean, big takeaways. Uh, we have been very frustrated. Investors have been frustrated. Air, Germany's partners have been very frustrated because Chancellor Scholz comes in uh, to, to power uh, 20, uh, late 2021, Russians invade Ukraine in February, and he stood up and did this astonishing thing of saying, you know, everything has changed. Uh, defense spending is going to go up to 2%, and we're going to spend 100 billion euros on extra defense equipment just to sort of recapitalize the whole of German defense, which heaven knows it needs, because Germany has taken bigger peace dividends than anybody else for the last 25 years. So February, March was amazing. Uh, you know, German defense could do no wrong. And then no orders occurred whatsoever. And in fact, the, you know, less than 1% of that 100 billion has so far been committed to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to orders. So uh, that has been really frustrating. And some people have said, well, Olaf Scholz doesn't really mean it. Other people have said, yeah, well, the Federal Procurement Office, which is a, um, a, a key part of the the whole process of putting all these things through uh, has been working very slowly. There have been accusations that their heart isn't really in it. I did, never think thought that was fair. But um, so to hear Ramtal and MTU, who I think have been very frustrated earlier on this year, saying number one, Olaf Scholz really means it. He is, you know, he does not see Germany as returning to the status quo um, uh, before the Russians invaded. They're not going to go back and start taking, uh, you know, gas from uh, Russia. Germany is not going to, you know, go back to trade rather than uh, anything else. Germany recognizes that the invasion of Ukraine has changed everything. That That's pretty reassuring, I think. Um, but number two, they really do recognize that the orders, whole orders process has, has now got to pick up. There, we know there are some big headline um, programs, F-35s, for the uh, nuclear uh, bomb carrying role in particular, possibly some more, uh, more P-8s um, uh, uh, as well. But the really, uh, and the heavy lift helicopters, Chinooks, but the, <clears throat> the programs that I think are, are most interesting tend to be the ones that are sort of slightly below that, because these are how does Germany recapitalize its armed forces? And recapitalizing the armed forces tends to be quite a lot of individual armored and not quite so armored vehicle programs, artillery, and a literally tons and probably thousands of tons of ammunition. And we're just starting to see, but literally by the very end of, of this calendar year, we'll just start to see the first orders being placed. But the companies have been doing some work in terms of ramping up production lines. Your comment about how um, NATO has used half its stocks, I think that's charitable. I think uh, you know, to, to imply that NATO has half its stocks left, there are there have been some reports in Germany. Which oh, let me let me just clarify. Let me let me just let me just clarify. What he said is we've been giving an enormous amount of stuff, and people have a tendency of thinking we were at full stock. We are yeah. giving this stuff from half stock is where we're yeah. starting. Yeah. So that's oh. it, it just just so you might want to rephrase that. That you know yeah. his his point was people have this imagine you know or imagine that we were like oh bunkers full. And it's like, no, it's the direct opposite. So anyway, yeah. that was it. Yeah, no, okay. So, well, um, okay, so three, two, one, go. So, you know, there's there's been this impression that NATO, I mean, NATO has clearly been delivering huge amounts of material out of its uh, existing stockpiles, but the stockpiles are not very big. In fact, they're little stock hummocks uh, rather than anything else. And 
Um, there's been very, very well sourced comments from the German press that in for some munitions natures, Germany is down to five days of supply. Now, you know, a day of supply is a um, uh, is is an artificial construct of itself. But you know, five days of supply is is perilously low. And if you look at the the, the natures for which Ukrainian um, demand, you know, demand has been uh, enormous, artillery ammunition, particularly 155 millimeter artillery ammunition. Problem with artillery ammunition: most countries that produce it in uh, Europe have capacities of less than 20,000 rounds um, a year. And the US has, you know, has supplied several hundred thousand rounds, is just buying another 500,000 rounds from Korea. So, you know, these are multiple years of supplies. Um, Ryan Mattel rather elegantly dealt with that this week by buying a Spanish uh, artillery shell producer called XPAL, uh, which will give them capacity of over 300 thousand uh, rounds of 155 millimeter uh, a year and um, they would expect to see that as being uh, you know a major way that they can supply both Germany and the broader European market in a very very elegant rather vertically integrated uh, way but you know look at the other natures um, uh, the GMLRS rockets uh, which are fired out of the HIMARS and the older MLRS uh, rocket systems these are being used at rates which are totally unsustainable. NATO probably can't sustain supplying those those rates, I would guess, certainly beyond another sort of six, nine months or so. And Lockheed Martin is only just starting to increase production there. The news this week, which was fascinating, is that there's starting to be um, interest from Germany to re-establish an MLRS rocket line right. that existed at the very beginning of the program. Um, and uh, there'll be a European capability to produce both the rocket motors and the warheads and then to integrate them as well. And I think this is the stage at which a second source line, Lockheed Martin probably getting, um, or almost certainly getting a license fee for that, is the way to increase production, rather than thinking that all of that can, can go through what are clearly very capacity constrained uh, production lines in, uh, in, in the US. So uh, things, are, you know, I came away from these two capital markets days much more optimistic about Germany and that Germany gets it. Whereas I was very worried that Germany did not get it before these and that the specific focus on munitions for which stocks are catastrophically low are starting to improve. And I suppose the third one I'd highlight would be surface to air missiles, <clears throat> where consumption of surface to air missiles has, you know, has been huge. Um, I think that will take longer to ramp up, if it, you know, in particular because of issues of semiconductors and, and seeker heads and so forth. But there's certainly a, a much greater understanding of the requirement within Europe for Europe to, to um, set up a, a broad surface-to-air missile umbrella, uh, initially over NATO, but then probably extending over the Ukraine. Um, th these were really, really positive messages to come out of companies that are not you know, they, they, they're not beholden to their government in terms of um, uh, spinning a particular line. The uh, Franco-German uh, Spanish SCAF uh, program, a news update on it, and uh, your thoughts on uh, the what appear to be uh, Ukrainian uh, missiles uh, designed to intercept uh, Russian missiles that have been pounding uh, Ukrainian infrastructure that uh, may have gone off course a uh, couple of miles into Poland, where it unfortunately killed two people. Give us your sense on both of those. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, SCAF, really very, very interesting. The mood music on the SCAF FCAS program has changed a lot in the last uh, seven days or so. Um, we've been waiting, the companies have been waiting, the governments have been waiting for over a year for the signing of what's called Phase 1B. In Phase 1B of that program, um, commits billions of euros to uh, producing demonstrator aircraft which fly um, and really to taking the design to the next level. Once you got beyond phase B, phase 1B, the next stage is full-scale development and then production. And phase 1B would take this program into the late 2020s. So it, it, this is the first big spending thing. Been held up by a big argument between Airbus Defence and Space, which is actually a, the German business, and represents Germany in this, and Dassault Aviation, which present, uh, represents France. Um, and the, the, the argument there has been over leadership and technology transfer. Well, it sounds as if um, those two organizations have come to an agreement, or at least have, have, uh, have been forced into some sort of an agreement. The governments, I, I, my view is the governments have recognized that blood is thicker than water. 
and that the Franco-German alliance is more important than the sensitivities of the companies in it. Uh, you know, if, if SCAF fails, the Franco-German alliance is very badly weakened. If SCAF succeeds, everybody does well, even companies that might have had to give a bit more than they expected in terms of tech transfer or in terms of, uh, you know, who does what sub package or whatever. Um, so I think we'll see phase one be now signed before Christmas, possibly even signed, you know, beginning of December. Um, the Spanish you know, ironically, you know, probably now the, the ones who are holding it back a bit. But that really is detail by comparison with uh, getting Airbus Defence and Space and Dassault uh, in line. Um, and, you know, this will mean that the, you know, the two competing European uh, fixed, you know, combat air programmes, SCAF and, and uh, the British-Italian-led Tempest programme um, will, will be on their way. Of the two, Tempest is probably a bit ahead of SCAF, but you know we're at the early stage of both programs. I, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't care to call that race. So you know that was that was definitely a new thing. Finally, um, yeah, tragic accident in Poland. A missile flew off course um, and uh, killed a couple of people in the border region, and we didn't know where that whose missile that was originally. It was uh, people thought it was a Russian missile. It looks more likely as we go to uh, to press or as we record that um, it was a uh, actually Ukrainian air defense missile, part of the S three hundred system, uh, <clears throat> which was trying to intercept a Russian missile and either missed or part of it fell into into Poland. What are the big takeaways? First takeaway, I think the NATO nations were very careful and pretty smart about not um, launching off to use a phrase uh and you know assigning blame until they could find out really what had happened it could have been a lot worse if they had overreacted and overreacted wrong second thing this is a very clear indication that conflict spread because the nature of the weapons being used is that they don't respect borders particularly well and if there's a huge number of missiles and drones flying around and there are because that's what russia is launching the Ukrainians will have to use a huge number of surface-to-air missiles in between, and occasionally horrible accidents happen. And this spread of the war into adjacent uh, territories, particularly Poland, but also Romania and also Moldova, is something that I think NATO nations are going to be really you know, acutely concerned about and are really going to uh, focus on. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Uh, hope you have a, a great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Vargo. Really enjoyed it, and I look forward to being back with uh, Richard and Ron next week. Indeed. Thanks so much. Cheers.